Hello there. Thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd Fink, and I want to extend my appreciation to those of you who are supporting this work via Patreon. And if you'd still like to become a Kind Mind patron, you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash kindmind. And there you will find three options of monthly pledges, which will give you access to different types of exclusive content, including the Kind Mind Studio, where there are guided meditations and other mindfulness resources, passes to our virtual gatherings. The next one is this coming Tuesday, October 27th. It'll be about something spooky. If you would like to find the details and the Zoom invite, you can visit my website, michaeltodfink.com, or find me on Facebook at Michael Todd Fink. And next month's episode, I plan to make available exclusively to Patreon members. So please check that out if you haven't yet. I recently recorded a Live Free or Dialogue with my friend Alex Ebert, who you probably know from the band Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros and the wildly popular hit Home. You can find that on my new YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Michael Todd Fink. We explored a lot of really meaningful topics, including self-destruction versus self-improvement, the relationship between creativity and activism, the limits of cancel culture, the new religion of politics, spiritual bypassing, and the breakdown of a shared reality. It's called Evolving in Art and Heart. A lot of interesting directions that we go in a very breathing, organic way which is what I've envisioned for this series. And that conversation is about two hours long. I'd I'd really appreciate it if you check it out and comment and share. So this episode is about the present moment. And I explain a little bit of the etymology of the word present, but I didn't talk about the word now, which is derived from new and you in multiple languages. So now and new have a very intimate connection. And of course, one of the obstacles to being here in the now is that we don't think there's anything new happening. But upon closer inspection, we can find that there is always something new and there's always something magical, which I dive deeper into in this episode. But we have the election coming in a matter of days, and it appears as though this is going to be a really difficult winter with respect to the pandemic. And so it's maybe seemingly a strange time to talk about really enjoying the present moment when there's so much darkness surrounding us. And of course, we're all looking ahead to a time when we are through this challenge. But I also think that's precisely why it can be relevant to not overlook the simple joys in the here and now. And this was recorded back in April, virtually, when we were in a lockdown, at least here in Illinois. So some of the themes were a little bit more relatable to to what was going on then. And there were some questions that came at the end. You can't 
hear the the questions because most of them were typed in the chat box. I, I think I did my best to repeat them so you kind of know what I'm talking about. But listening back, I feel like I could have done a, a better job specifically with one question about how do you differentiate between finding joy in the present moment and making choices to have joy or health in the future. I think I could have done a better job explaining that, yes, we have these studies that show that people are not good at predicting what would make them happy, and therefore it's probably wiser to have a personal mission and make choices based on core values. So not having a family and choosing to have a family or build a marriage or pick a certain career need not be done for the sake of making oneself happy because we may not be able to predict that accurately, but because we want to love and, and because we value compassion and kindness and adventure. And then we can make those choices without the expectation that there will be the desired emotional outcome. So not chasing, not grasping, happiness happens. Then there was a question about vivid memories from meaningful moments in our past, and are those just distractions from the here and now? And I think I was too quick to dismiss that as such, especially within the context of special relativity and talking about Einstein's black universe. In retrospect, I would have a little bit more open mind about that. I talked about the structure of work weeks conventionally and how that orients us to the future, like to the weekend or to retirement. But it also leads to a certain kind of routine that doesn't necessarily support us in our personal mission. So don't let today be merely a repetition of yesterday. Coming back to the word new and now, even if everything seems the same and nothing new arrives, you can ask yourself, can something be shed? like how the sculptor works, not to add, but to reveal. So even in ashrams or monasteries, there is a very rigid routine oftentimes, and it may be outwardly monotonous, but it's only like a marina with the essential supplies for the small boats to launch out on the inner odyssey of the now. And finally, I talked a lot about meditation being my personal training for keeping my awareness more in the present moment and the benefits that I've derived from that. But just yesterday, I was talking with my bandmates, including my brother, and we were reflecting on our experiences on the stage and how that has been a mindfulness training. So when you're performing, there are certain boundaries around that present moment that you'll bump up against. If you get too distracted or you're worried about something else, you can easily lose your place in the music. This is a little bit less likely when an artist has a very specific set that they perform over and over, because then that creates the space for abstract thought, and you might be able to to do it like you would be driving a car spontaneously, but we can think about a lot of other things. And because of this, I think our band wanted to be more adventurous and wanted to 
have more improvisation and mix up the order of songs night to night. We got inspired by the Grateful Dead in this respect. I remember Jerry Garcia said something like, recording is like building one of those little ships inside of a bottle. And the live concert experience is like sailing a real ship. And what I learned was that when I lost my anchor to the present moment, it it didn't necessarily mean I made a mistake, but if I even lost my present awareness, if I started thinking about what I wanted to do after that show or something that happened earlier, people started to notice that. Like the audience will notice that more than they would mistakes. So it took me a while to understand that we gather in a concert, both the performers and the audience, not not so that the audience can analyze our technique and point out our mistakes. They're coming to let go of that kind of judgment, to actually transcend the stresses of daily life and the worries of our future. And then Together, we connect and celebrate in dance and song and find unity in that present experience. So one of the worst criticisms would be, you just didn't really seem to be feeling it tonight, or you seemed elsewhere. That really hurt, and I realized that that could be what I'm conveying, even if I'm, I am in the present moment. So I started to study my posture and expression, and I could find that there were times when I was really present with my instrument, but not present to the band. Or I was really present with my instrument and the band, but not with the audience. And so now means not just what's going on inside, but the immediate surrounding too. So here and now, and we all worked on this together in our band and we would study our experiences and we would record them and videotape them so we could look at at each other and give each other feedback. When someone made a mistake, it was quite natural to react in some way. Worst case scenario, somebody would look over and scowl like you messed us up. This is kind of like sports in the sense that when you don't like a call that the referee made or somebody made a bad pass, you might feel the impulse to go deal with that. But that's what a timeout is for. And it's interesting that it's called timeout because it pauses the game and you get to step outside of the now. But if you don't call a timeout and you react, you're now in the past. Because as soon as someone hits a wrong note, the music is flowing. That's already gone. If you look over at that person to express your disapproval, you're the one now slowing the train down. And the audience senses and feels that more than the mistake. So in this way, the stage became a sort of dojo for all of us. An invitation to be in the flow state. And as our band grew in size and experience, we tried to experiment more and more with how long we could maintain that awareness with the audience as well. And I think this culminated one night in Kentucky at Romfest in Owensboro, 
we had the last set at like 1 a.m., a late night set. And there were hundreds of people still there. And we were so into the music, and so were they. Everybody's dancing, and there was this beautiful exchange of energy that we just kept going. We had no sense of time. And then we realized how long we had been playing because the sun came up and dawn broke, which was also beautiful because light was streaking through the mist. And it seemed to kind of hit all of us that we were just immersed in this experience. And I I would imagine it was like five or six hours of performance. So anyways, that is one of the most beautiful aspects of music and the live concert experience, which I know so many of us miss dearly, including me. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to connecting soon. start with a little story called Peter and the Golden Thread and it comes from author Robin Sharma in his book The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari Once there was a boy named Peter who could not live in the present moment he was always dreaming of another time when he was in school In the classroom, he would be dreaming of recess. When he was at recess, he would be dreaming of lunch. And when he came back to the classroom, he'd be dreaming of being at home or when the summer would come when there would be no school. Like this, Peter was always outside of the here and now in his mind. One day, Peter was out in the woods playing and he decided to lay down and rest in an open field. Laying back in the grass, he started to fall asleep. And then suddenly he was jarred back awake from his sleep because he heard an unfamiliar voice calling out to him, Peter, Peter. When he sat up, he was surprised to see a striking woman who had to be over a hundred years old with long hair that looked like a woolen mat And in her hand, she had a magic ball and a beautiful golden thread hanging from it. She said, Peter, this is the thread of your life. This magic ball and this thread can fast forward your life. And if you pull on that thread just a little bit, an hour will pass in seconds. If you pull on it a little bit harder, then days will pass in minutes. And if you pull on it even harder, months or even years will pass in a matter of days. She said, would you like to accept this gift, Peter? And he said, yes. So he took this magic ball and golden thread and he put it in his pocket and he made his way home and then he forgot about it for some time 
But one day when he was feeling especially bored in the classroom, he remembered that he had this magic ball and golden thread and he pulled it out and he said, you know what? I don't want to be in this classroom anymore. He gave it a little pull on the thread and then, bam, he was at recess. And he said, I can really get used to this trick. But after some days being in school, he thought, you know, I'm tired of being a schoolboy altogether. I'm tired of being this age. I want to be a teenager. I want to be older. I want to have more freedom. So he pulled a little harder on the golden thread. And then he was 18, 19 years old in a matter of a day or so. And he was happy to find out that he had a very pretty girlfriend named Elisa. And so they spent some time together. But it wasn't long before Peter started wondering what life would be like as a full-grown adult. He was very curious. And still, being a teenager, he had a lot of limitations. So he gave it a much harder tug. And... It fast-forwarded him all the way till he was a middle-aged man. And he was married to Elisa, and they had some children. So there were many exciting things to see, but at the same time, his parents were old and frail and not doing well health-wise. So he became very sad to discover that, and when he was looking in the mirror, he saw that he had some gray hair, and he was used to his dark jet black hair so he thought this isn't really a good time this midlife crisis so he pulled it again and he pulled too hard and went to near the end of his life he was an old man his wife had passed away his kids were grown they had moved away and he was all alone and he felt very disappointed because he started realizing all the things he had missed. He was like, I'm an old man at the end of my life and I haven't spent any time with my children. I haven't spent time with my wife. I wasn't there for my parents when they needed me. And he went back to that same place where he originally met the, the woman who gave him the magic ball and he sat down there again. Now, the small trees had become mighty oaks and he rested there and he started to doze off again and once again he heard his name being called and he sat up and the woman returned and she said Peter Peter and he said you're the one who gave me this magic ball and golden thread and she said yes did, did you like my present and he said, at first I liked it, but now I hate it. I've missed out on my whole life. And she said, wow, you're a very ungrateful person indeed. And she said, I'll tell you what. I'll give you one wish. What would you like your one wish to be, Peter? He said, can you please send me back to the age I was when, I, when we met? So then he fell back asleep. When he awoke, he was a schoolboy again. And this time, he had a totally different outlook on his life. And even though there were 
difficulties and ups and downs, joys and sorrows. He wanted to be present for all of it because he had seen a glimpse into what a life lived without being present looks like and he didn't want to fall into that trap again. So I like that story because it kind of illustrates how our mind gets oriented in modern culture. I was just thinking that for a lot of people, I'm hearing them say, oh, I thought it was Monday when it was Wednesday. They're getting the days mixed up. And I'm thinking, that's kind of nice if some people don't actually have to keep track of days right now. Because imagine what a week has done to us, the idea of a work week, of a seven-day week. It's not something that's real. It's not something that's even imposed on time. What does Tuesday look like? I mean, does Tuesday require that the earth is in a certain position? No, the earth can be in any position, right? There can be Tuesdays in winter. There can be Tuesdays in summer. It's not that it's a certain time uh, or certain rotation of the earth. There can be any day when the sun is out. It could be any day of the week. So Tuesday and any day is a superimposition on the mind. It's a mental construct that the collective all accepts in the mind, not actually on time. But this has come with some benefit for coordination and some great cost, I feel like. The cost is that it starts to create these divides in our mind about past, present, and future that can create a lot of suffering, I think. And I mean, we know the common theme of living for the weekend, but that also leads people to never fully being present, never actually living their life, because when you're in the middle of an unpleasant day, you're living for the end of that day. And when you're in the middle of an unpleasant week, you're living for the weekend. But once you get to the weekend, then the fear starts to build up or the dread starts to build up of the cycle repeating. Now, imagine if some of that is entirely stripped away for some people, you can just be and you can be present with whatever's happening. Imagine life before the work week. There would still be work to be done, but it would depend a lot on what the moment dictated. If you need food, you would go get food. If there's a storm, you might wait, you might retreat. If it's dark, you might sleep. If there's light, you might work. And I bet there was a certain kind of peace in all of that. So anyways, it is just a construct and it's a useful construct, but I think it can be helpful to be able to operate beyond that or to transcend it, at least at times or in our meditation. I had a chance to do a little hiking in one of the parks that's open. This is a, a forest preserve that's pretty close to where I live. And I would say that most of the time when I go into this forest, it's about 50-50 whether or not I would see another person. Now when I go, I can barely get a parking spot. So people are in the forest because, well, why? Because 
everything's closed, perhaps. Movie theaters are closed. Bowling alleys closed. Can't go to parties. And people want... And you can't go to the gym. And people want to, to move, to exercise. And so I guess... We've gone back to the old-fashioned way of getting exercise. Just going into nature and moving around and walking around. On the one hand... I was, I'm disappointed that I have to share the nature with so many people. On the other hand, I'm hopeful that we will start to appreciate a little bit more how we don't need as much as we thought we did. And if you go into nature enough during this time, you probably start to realize that this is a space that I want to come back to. I could kind of just tell in the people who I could see in there that they were so pleasantly surprised that there was a place like that, that there was a space like that probably close by that they'd never explored before. And now there's a, a reason to. So there are some special things happening in this challenging time. But what is the present? It's a special word because it has at least four meanings. One adjective, one verb, and two nouns. Okay, so the adjective would be to describe the nature of a person or the quality of a person. That person's very present. The quality of one's mind. To have your awareness present. Then the verb present is to gift, to give, or to introduce. Let me present to you, my friend. Or our speaker. And then the noun, the present, that refers to this point in time, the now. The now is a point in time, like here is a point in space. We feel like we're at the edge of time all the time. But we don't feel like we're at the edge of space. It's kind of curious. Some physicists like Einstein saw the relationship between space and time and how time is the fourth dimension of space-time. And he described a framework for the universe with special relativity that proposed that there's no such thing as now. Because in the special relativity, you see that motion affects the point that we would call now. And so different participants in different reference frames of motion would not agree on the order of things. So he described time as an eternal now or a block time or block universe meaning everything that ever was is or will be is now but because we have a brain and we form memories and because of something called entropy entropy is a second law of thermodynamics that describes how 
the universe is more organized in what we call the past and it's more disorganized in the future. For example, opening up a deck of cards, it's very organized. As time passes and we start shuffling it, it gets more and more unpredictable. Life is the same way. It starts in a little bit more organized and from there it gets more and more unpredictable. Because of that, and because our brain forms memories, we get the sense that there is an arrow of time, past, present, and future. But Einstein and many other physicists today say that that's largely an illusion. Well, could you imagine if there was a way to fully realize that illusion? Like somehow, I don't know, through meditation or through some kind of awakening that a mind could be able to grasp that concept of the black universe. Perhaps it's something like observing a parade. You see cars and people coming by and then they exit and it seems as though they're definitely gone. But only from that frame of reference. If you could watch that parade from the top of the Willis Tower, you might see that, oh, the parade, the people, everything still exists. Another example of this is like dead stars or stars that have burned out. We're still looking at many of those in the night sky because their light is still traveling to us. So you may have heard that when you're looking at stars. So our now is not the now from the point of view of that star system. If there were people way out there with a big enough telescope to look at us, they wouldn't see now. They would see whatever was happening millions of years ago because that's how long it would take for the light and the information in the light to travel to that part of the universe. So whatever happened here millions of years ago for us is now somewhere else in the universe. But maybe it's possible to, to realize this somehow. Anyways, with these four definitions, I think they all have value in supporting us in being more mindful and living in the here and now, living in the present moment. The pre part of present you break that into two words, pre and sent. Now is a gift that was sent from before. So you've sent this moment to yourself is one way to think of it. Now has been pre-sent based on everything that came before. Your choices, your activities, the events of your life. And to be present then is to accept that gift from yourself. This etymology of present goes to French and to Latin, but present or presence also meant the space around the being. And I think when you change this word to presence, presence isn't like just the physical form of Todd or your friend. It's like an energy. You might talk about the presence of somebody, even when they're not physically there. 
So the present moment includes both the point in time and space. There has to be awareness both in the now and here, whatever here means. Right now here could mean the room that you're in, the conference that we're in, the Zoom session that we're in. But I could imagine someday when we're traveling beyond our planet, people might be dreaming of quarantine on Saturn because the rings are so beautiful there. And we'll talk about here, meaning Earth. I'd like to stay here. People have been saying where else they would have liked to have done their quarantine. And if they ever had to in the future. Now, I can honestly say, like, many times it has occurred to me, like, this might have been way more pleasurable to have been in Bali again, let's say. <laughs> so, so this is why it's funny. Because the human mind is mostly wrong about how it thinks you would be happier. So sometimes the mind thinks I was happier in the past. Sometimes it thinks I would be happier in the future if I had certain set of circumstances. And then it also thinks in this four-dimensional space-time, I would be happier now if I wasn't here, in this point, in space. I can handle now, but if my now was not here, like if my now was in Bali, I could be happy. And the psychological research debunks all of that for the most part. So let me share with you a couple fascinating studies. And I think these uh, this research will illustrate why we need to return to the present moment, why we need to make this an active, dynamic part of our spiritual practice and break through something that is mostly an illusion. The very renowned psychologist Daniel Kahneman, who I've mentioned before, has done a series of experiments and studies with subjects to try to understand the difference between what we think about our utility, like our life satisfaction, in other moments of space and time. One of these studies was with thousands of college students in the Midwest, like here in Illinois, and in California. Now, if you just used your intuition to wonder, who do you think's happier in general? Students that live in California and go to school somewhere near the ocean or students in the Midwest, like Minnesota in the winter, Michigan in the winter, Illinois in the winter. We would probably say, yeah, you're probably going to find that Californians are, are going to be more pleased with their circumstances. But in this study, Kahneman found that when you account for all the variables like health and income and it just comes down to life satisfaction there's no difference no difference between the Midwest and California then why do we say things like gosh I would love to go to California I'd love to take a trip to California I'd be happier if I had gone to school in a warmer climate these experiments went further and he started to identify that there's a difference between 
the experiencing self and the remembering self or the predicting self. So he started to differentiate these types of utility or well-being. There is a gap between how we remember our happiness and how we really lived it. So he did a study of the remembering utility or the remembering self. He and his colleagues followed people in like say vacations or on vacations and they would check in with people in real time and do life satisfaction assessments. So where are you? What's going on? How happy are you? And then when they would come back, they would get interviewed again and they would get asked about their experiences on the trip. And there would be this wide gap between the way they remembered it and the way they actually lived it. So then the researchers could say, no, actually you were really unhappy that day. And here's why, you know, the food wasn't good or yes, you were snorkeling, but, but the gear didn't fit you and you were really uncomfortable. So we all have both this way of questioning and way of answering in a conventional exchange. When people come back, we ask, how was it? We don't really ask, were you happy at this time? What was your experience like when you did this activity, right? We just say, or we just ask, how was it? And then when we answer questions like that, what happens in the mind that we don't realize is that we assess it in a global way. And so this affects our interpretation of what actually happened. We talk about what those experiences mean in our life. So like when I come back from Indonesia and someone says, how was it? And I say, it was beautiful. Because I'm thinking about the big picture. What does it mean now for my life to have these memories of another part of the world and to remember what the ocean looked like and these mountains and the people? Well, then I think it's all beautiful. But if you actually tuned in to me on any particular day, maybe I was happy, but maybe I was stressed about something. Robert knows, like if you checked in with us at the moment we were stuck in the monsoon and thought maybe we were going to die of hypothermia on Mount Rinjani, we probably weren't too happy at that moment. Our life satisfaction wasn't high, but afterwards we can say that was awesome because it was an adventure. But we wouldn't have said that at that moment. So my point here is that the mind keeps chasing after these dreams in the past. And I, I see this a lot with the clients that I work with, also with friends to some extent, where we think what we had was better than it actually was. So that's called the remembering self versus the experiencing self. And the same is largely true for the future. Kahneman and his associates created another experiment to test this with the future. They paid subjects to eat their favorite ice cream while listening to good music, music that they love, for one week. If I offered to pay you to eat your favorite ice cream and listen to your favorite jams, do you think that would be a good deal? <laughs> so he also asked them to, <laughs> to rate 
how enjoyable that would be. And then they did it. And the researchers checked in with them to assess their utility during the experience of having the ice cream and listening to the music. And when they got the data back, there was no ability whatsoever to predict your mood, your well-being in the future, knowing that you were going to be doing something that you thought would be really enjoyable. The reality was some people got sick, some people got addicted to the ice cream, some people got toothaches, some people found that the music, though it may be music that they like, it made them sad, it reminded them of something painful, and there was no accuracy with predicting future utility by getting what they wanted. We already know this to be the case with really extreme events, like people winning major lotteries have been studied for years by psychologists, and after about a month, their personality goes back to whatever it was before they won the lottery. This is called adaptation in psychology. And we never account for it ordinarily unless you tune into this insight and redirect your awareness to the present moment. But adaptation means that it's like a thermostat. Your utility, your contentment in life is set at some measure. And circumstances change just like the temperature changes outside and the heat has to kick on or the air conditioning has to kick on. But in time, the temperature will come back to whatever it's set at. So a person wins the lotto and for about a month, their mood is elevated. And then after a month, it starts to come back to whatever homeostasis is for that person. The same is true for unpleasant events. The same is true for people who get injured and become paraplegic. For a month, it's extremely depressing. And then about a year later, the person's life satisfaction levels actually return to where they were at prior to the accident. So I'm saying all this because to me, that is scientific evidence for living in the present moment. When our mind is telling us that this thing, this person, this place would make it all better, there's nothing to support that that's true. I mean, yes, having wisdom from experiencing the world, from my travels in the world, like is valuable to me. But that's not necessarily why I choose to go, thinking all this pain and difficulty will lead to me being a better person. Maybe. But usually people are drawn to things because there's something beautiful or pleasing. We're probably evolutionarily wired to keep pursuing pleasurable experiences because that's what keeps people alive. So I've been reflecting on a lot of my experiences of the past where I said that was really wonderful. And when I go deeper back into it, I could identify or I could recognize that in any given moment, it might not have been a wonderful moment. The global assessment is wonderful. So if that isn't a reason for orienting our awareness and tuning us back into here and now, I mean, I, I don't know what it is. And if we think of the present as this gift that we 
have to be available to. Then we can practice it. Now, I said that the mind gets programmed to go after pleasure outside of the here and now. Because that's, I think, a survival strategy. But the brain could be trained to be rewarded in the present moment. But this has been my experience with meditation. That meditation started to become more rewarding than the other things that I could sense my life was pursuing. And so being present started to become more attractive over time. And from the outside, it would sometimes look to other people, why are you not going for this thing or that thing? Or how come you've been able to stay at a job for so long? I mean, aren't there other things you want to do? And that's kind of the long-term effect, I think, of finding contentment, that you don't have to change a whole bunch of things. And yet within that framework, I've had lots of different experiences, but I didn't have to change or uproot a lot of important things because when you keep tuning into the here and now there's so much to explore there especially inwardly in meditation you're familiar with flow states I think we've talked about that before but a flow state is when you are so present that there's essentially no mind there's just awareness it could happen I think when a person is playing a sport when they're creating art, when they're dancing. If you've had that experience, it's kind of transcendental because time no longer is a burden. You're so in the now that thinking doesn't work because thinking can't actually fit into the now. The now is so narrow, the present moment is so narrow and thinking needs space. As soon as you're thinking, you're already outside of the present moment. Even if I'm thinking about what I'm eating, I'm thinking about something that happened an instant ago. The agreeing or disagreeing, the accepting or rejecting in the mind is all about the past or the future. Even though it might be the immediate past, it's still outside of the here and now. So in a flow state, that breaks down and a person is just seeing, just listening, just aware. But my question for all of us is, why does it take something special to earn that from us. I think we kind of go through life demanding that life or the world or society or another person give us a reason to pay attention. I mean, think about that for a moment. You got to give me a reason why I should give my attention. And it seems like That's something that we're gifting others. I'm going to gift you my attention, my presence. And yet, it's actually something that you're depriving of yourself. It's very much akin to forgiveness. People might say, I would forgive, but only if that person deserves it. So if if they don't deserve it and you hold on to your resentment, you're depriving yourself of the freedom of forgiveness. The same is true with attention. When we think that I would give my attention if something was worth paying attention to, then you're depriving yourself of flow state. And I wonder if being a mindfulness master is little more than the ability to enter into flow with anything, 
when there is no longer a separation between the sacred and the profane, between the ordinary and the extraordinary. I think this is dealt with in more detail in Zen. The Zen master Dogen talked about a concept called Uji, which has no translation because it's so there's so much depth to that word, but we sometimes call it being time or time being. In his treatise, he is bringing time and existence together. We have this expression, the time being, for the time being. And our species is called human being. Being is not a thing. Being is a verb. To be or being. I mean, how amazing is that? We're not a noun. We're a process. St. Augustine, like Dogen, said something like, I know what time is, but when you ask me what it is, then I don't know. So time and existence, they're not separate from each other. And unless we come back to the present moment, we're not really living our life. So I guess what I would invite everybody to experiment with is letting go of that need for, for life to give you a reason to pay attention, to give you a reason to surrender to the now. Like Thich Nhat Hanh describes doing dishes as something that ordinarily people don't enjoy doing. Because while they're doing it, they're thinking, I would be happier sitting on the couch watching TV. And again, the psychologist Daniel Kahneman has already shown, you're not going to be any more happy outside of the here and now. You're going to adapt and go back to the way you are. So Thich Nhat Hanh saying, why not just hold one dish at a time? And that's all there is, is that dish. He said, if I'm washing a dish, I wash it like I'm washing a baby Buddha. And when he's holding his tea, he says, I bring the left hand, which is the past, to the mug, and the right hand, which is the future, to the other side. And the tea is present moment, the now. And I try to keep my mind contained there and when we do that then the mind disappears there's no room for thinking in the now it's too narrow so you can think about it like a mala I think the practice of chanting with a mala is the practice of being fully present in the now. This beat is now, then this beat is now, then this beat is now, and so on. 
and to use all five senses to be present with each bead. Like Emily Dickinson said, forever is composed of nows. So, a couple Zen stories that I think tie this all together. There was one bizarre Zen master who lived in a hermitage and a visiting monk came and noticed that a fire had started in the kitchen. So he ran to the master's quarters to wake him up and said, a fire's uh, started in the kitchen. You need to get up immediately. And the master said, eh, if it's only in the kitchen, then I'll get some more rest. Wake me up when it comes to the hallway. <laughs> and then he went back to sleep. So that's one story. Another story is a student's asking a master, from where can I enter Zen? The master says, do you hear the sound of that mountain stream? The student answers, yes. Enter from there, the master replies. Then the student starts thinking and inquires again, excuse me, master, suppose I had said, no, I don't hear the mountain stream. What would you have said then? And the master responded, then enter Zen from there. So the point of that story is that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, that is the access point. That's where the magic is. And the last story I've told before, but it's the tale of the monk who is trying to make his way back quickly and taking a shortcut through a mountain pass on his way back to his monastery. When suddenly he realizes that he is being followed by a tiger. And in this unfamiliar path, he comes to the edge of the mountain. He's at a, at a cliff and the tiger has blocked off his exit. So he is coming face to face with this tiger and it's moving slowly back and forth getting a little bit closer a little bit closer and then the monk slips off the edge grabs hold of some branches and some vines and he's looking down and he sees that there's jagged rocks below and some water where there are crocodiles so above is the tiger looking over him below crocodiles and then he looks into the now and he sees on the vine that he's holding which is getting eaten by a mouse but on that vine is a beautiful plump strawberry so he plucks that strawberry and eats it and enjoys the strawberry and then there's one last story that I forgot so four stories a samurai warrior was captured and imprisoned. And that night he couldn't sleep because he was afraid 
He knew that the next day he would probably be interrogated and tortured and then executed. But then he remembered the words of his master, that time is an illusion and tomorrow is not real. And then he became peaceful and fell asleep. So we'll pause there. And if you have any thoughts or questions about this topic or anything we've been talking about lately, you're welcome to share. Imagine if you didn't have memory. So I think when the scientists and the mystics are saying that time is an illusion, part of this is that we have memories. If there was absolutely no memory, what would life be? For the eyes, it would just be a photograph. There are some brain injuries that cause motion blindness. People can't see movement. So like if they stepped out onto a street, they would just see a bunch of parked cars. But imagine no memory at all. So to to talk, to to understand the relationship between events is all because we have memory. And again, if it's entropy that causes the arrow of time, that the past was more organized and what we think of as the future is more disorganized, maybe our brains just store the past. Imagine if there was another kind of brain that stores memories of the future. You might think, well, whenever something happens, it goes from past to future. That's only with a memory. You have to have a memory for something to happen. If there's no memory, nothing's happening. Right? I mean, I think something's happening because we remember that something came before what I just said. If you had no memory of that, then nothing came before. There's no before. So maybe it's just that we're wired with a brain that tells us something happened before. Doesn't remember what came after. <laughs> I don't know, but I'd like, uh, I'd like to keep learning more about it. So how do you meditate and distinguish between finding joy in the present and making changes because they really will bring more joy and health? How do we know which is which, if this makes sense? I would say, and I, I'm going to talk about, I have talked about this in an upcoming podcast episode, the one that I did in Colorado, but I'll just touch on it here, that what I think works given the type of brains that we have is to be present forward. So to, to engage in your life like you're putting together a million piece puzzle you're building towards something, right? But it, but in any given moment, it's just these two pieces. But it's, it's part of some larger tapestry. And if it fits into that tapestry, so I guess what I'm saying is try to, try to develop or uncover your sense of purpose, like we talked about before, and personal mission. It may even be helpful to write a mission statement for your life. 
And then with whatever pieces you're holding, you figure it out. Like when you're putting a puzzle together, if these two pieces don't fit, you don't get angry. I mean, a puzzle would be totally pointless if every time I picked up two pieces, they fit. Nobody wants to do a puzzle like that. They just want to keep checking, you know? So it's the same thing. No judgment is what I'm getting at. So in that way, there's not really like a choice. It's not like I choose for these pieces to not fit. I choose to hate these two pieces. That's what it's like in life. We're bringing things together. It doesn't fit. So what? You know, then see if the next ones do. No hating, no clinging, no craving in that approach to life. So hopefully that helps. So I guess, if I understand the question correctly, you could make an argument for hedonism, right? Like, why not get super high right now? Or why not do heroin? Because in that moment, you'll be feeling really good. And of course, in later moments, that won't be the case. I don't think there's a simple answer to this, but again, it comes down to all the divisions we make in our mind. We say, I like this experience, I don't like that experience. You know, for the most part, what drugs do when you get high, I mean, yes, there can be like a physical experience, like, so this depends on how much we value pleasure, but there, but joy isn't based in pleasure. Joy is something much deeper and pleasure is something very fleeting but when you make these divides that becomes a problem so if if we didn't divide right then people could get high by just being able to fully experience what's in the here and now when a person gets high suddenly like everything that's there is interesting the same stuff is there The drug just helps people not get obsessed with the past and future. We can practice that anytime. Are you saying that, in summary, all the joy is here and now? Yes, I am saying joy is here and now. If it's not here and now, where is it? There's no past that we can access and there's no future that we can access. If it's not here and now, it's not ours and it would never be ours. If it's something that has to be acquired, it could, it could be eliminated. So unless it's here and now, it's not, uh, it's not real, it's only an imagination. They have to do with brain chemicals. The meditation causes the chemicals to create presence, which causes joy. Yeah, there is a relationship between what the brain chemicals are doing. Keep in mind that drugs are not neurochemicals. So when you take a drug, you're not like taking more dopamine. The chemicals affect, or the drugs affect the chemicals that are already in the brain. So like a reuptake inhibitor leaves the neurochemical that you already have in the synapse. 
and changes your experience. So any experience that a person could have on drugs, that experience has most likely been had by somebody not on drugs because they're working with the same chemicals. And every experience changes the way the neurochemicals are flowing. When you see a sad movie, it's going to change your serotonin levels and a person might cry. They didn't ingest anything. So yeah, there and, and then meditation has an effect that leads to a similar feeling of being high and it stimulates regions of the brain that help us integrate the relevant information in the present moment. Does that have a name to be high from being present? I think that's the flow state. I think that's the name we have for it in in psychology when time is not burdening a person so I just thought of another more recent memory I was earlier in the year I went for a massage and probably like 50 minutes into the hour massage I had to go to the bathroom so bad like I couldn't I couldn't wait anymore <laughs> I had no idea how much time had passed though because up until up until that point I was in the flow I was just enjoying the moment and then my mind started grasping for what was outside of the here and now and so finally I tell the therapist I think I gotta get up and go to the bathroom can can you tell me where it's at and the therapist's like well it's actually down the hall a ways and there's technically only seven minutes left so if you want to end now and then I'm like well seven minutes left by the time I go to the bathroom come back it just might as well end so then I was like okay whatever I'll wait and then it was like the most miserable remainder of a massage. And then afterwards, it's like, how was massage? It's good. <laughs> it's a good massage. The therapist is really great. That's how so many things are in life. But we don't pay attention enough to realize some of those things. If we live in the now, how our perspective of time would change? Would it help us to slow it down just like when we were a child? In Suzuki's book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he introduces this concept of the beginner's mind. I don't remember what it's called in Japanese, but... The beginner's mind is like the mind of a child. So children are naturally more mindful because they're experiencing thing, things for the first time. We have this sense that we've seen all of this many times, this route to work that we take every day. And so we start to think abstractly. We might think that it, we're being productive thinking about what we want to do at work or thinking about dinner on our way home from work. But it's not something that's intentional, and I think it's important to realize that. 
So in Zen, with beginner's mind, you would look, you would be listening, watching, as if it's for the first time. And surely something is happening for the first time. Isn't there a type of happiness that comes with anticipation of an experience? We delay a pleasant experience so we can look forward to it. From stumbling on happiness. Right, so... That's all happening though in our imagination. And I guess it comes at a cost, which would be that we miss what is actually happening in the present moment. And then we start to build a habit because thinking is a habit. It can be unlearned through meditation, through spiritual practice. When the mind gets trained to be present, then that mind is more tranquil. So it's a skill to be able to think abstractly, to anticipate future happiness. The only thing is that, like I said before, the research doesn't show that you will actually be happy with the, with the experience that you're anticipating. So then what we're really talking about is, what is the utility of dreaming of things? There's something... You know, there's something to dreaming about some kind of experience. But I think most people would prefer to be on the beach rather than just wish they were at the beach. So it just comes at a cost. You don't get to fully experience what's here and now. Todd, remember the story you would tell about the study where people had either three flavors of ice cream to choose from or 32? (laughs) The study showed that the people with only three choices were happier with their choice. Do you think people have the capability to be happier now with less options? Definitely. So people are probably happier, actually, in a lot of cases if they're not deprived of of the basic needs, depending on where they're at on the pyramid of needs, it's quite possible that people are noticing that they are happier with less. So in the case of having many choices, there's something called choice paralysis. The more options we have, the more stress we have. Think about being in a grocery store and you're trying to decide. There's like a million different of that. It's like, well, this one's a little bit cheaper, but... Um, It's not the flavor that I like. And this one has more volume, but... And so on. So it's hard to choose. Same with clothes. There's a lot of different colors and it's hard to to pick. If there was only one color and you want that pair of pants or jacket, it's very easy. When I go to a restaurant and there's only one vegetarian dish, then it's very easy. That's what I get. When you have more choices, you have choice paralysis and you have regret. So if there's 32 flavors of ice cream and I picked one, even though it was good, I might have 
done better for myself if I picked the other one of the other 31 flavors. And so a person can't actually be as happy. So if I dream of retiring to Arizona and imagine how great fun and beautiful it will be, I, I may actually not be that much happier. Yeah, that's true. You know, I mean, I don't mean to bust anyone's dreams with that, but this is kind of how life is set up in society. Why would retirement be any different than the weekend? They're all relative. It's like saying, so when Friday comes, I'll be a happy person? Does that really happen? I mean, it's happening in the predictive mind. Yes, you have predictive utility. You think Saturday will make you happy. Similarly, we think retirement will make us happy. Similarly, the single person thinks in the future when I am married, I'll be happy. Or when I have a family, I'll be happy. Uh, none of these seem to bear out in reality in the research. Does it mean don't retire to somewhere like Arizona? Or don't have a family? No, it doesn't. It just means don't find yourself in the habit of thinking that joy is outside of the here and now. Make your choices in life. Uh, live your personal mission. But don't hanker after things outside of the here and now. And practice mindfulness. Can memories actually lend itself to the present moment? I've heard that memories are actually remembering the last time you remembered the memory. They can trigger a flood of feelings that are happening in the present moment. But unless you're paying attention to the feelings, then no, you're, you know, a person is kind of lost in thinking. All thoughts are memories, though, right? Because we can't really think about things that we have no memory of. We can put memories together to make imaginary things like, I know that there is a planet like Mars, so I can create other planets using the elements that I am familiar with in my memory. When you're using the five senses in the present moment, looking isn't thinking. Looking is is awareness, is perception. This isn't to say that there isn't value in remembering something. Again, it's just a reminder that we can fall into patterns where we don't spend much time in the here and now. Let's, uh, Take a few minutes to meditate together. If you wouldn't mind sitting comfortably in your seat. I invite you to close your eyes. Relax the tiny facial muscles around your eyes. Relax your shoulders. Let your arms hang like heavy curtains.
notice the sensation of sitting. The subtle pressure between your legs and the cushion or your feet and the floor. Then bring your attention to your breathing without trying to change it. Bring the five senses to the here and now. Breath is the root of so many meditation practices because breathing is always happening now. And here, literally right under your nose. As you inhale, feel as though the future is merging into the present. As you exhale, watch as the present is released to the past. Train your mind to find this to be worth your attention. The next breath comes once in a lifetime. <laughs> 